Good morning. With me, will you? I'll be reading from Isaiah 44, verse 21 through 28. Remember these things, O Jacob, in Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the sons of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited in all the cities of Judah. They shall be built and all rise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, her foundation shall be laid. God, Heavenly Father, we truly thank you for gathering us here today. Now we ask that we'll prepare us to hear what Aaron has to say. And thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. I'm looking forward to starting this new series with you all in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, the Alphas can be dismissed and follow the Bjorks back to class. We also have some coloring pages that are back there in the back for anybody who wants to grab those for kids sticking in here. So over the next few months, as we are in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I don't say books, uh, the early church, and actually historically these two books have been one book, uh, we're going to see faithfulness. The faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of God's people, and as a result, fruit, as a result, of faithfulness. And so uh, the reason for our study, if you recall, uh, came out of the last six months or so. So as we started our uh, new fiscal year, uh, we were looking at where we had been as a church, uh, where we are as a church, and where we sense the Lord is leading us and calling us in the days ahead. Uh, where Cornerstone Church, its mission, why we exist, is to love God, love others, and make disciples. This is revealed in Scripture. This is why we are here today. We see this in Matthew 22, verse 37 and 39. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the second piece comes out of the Great Commission. Many of you are familiar with that. Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and of teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We will accomplish our mission through our values. We talked about this a little bit last week, of biblical authority, intentional fellowship, gospel centrality, and dependent prayer, where the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And I think we can all agree that we've seen some fruit. God has grown our maturity over the last couple years, but we continue to grow for the rest of our lives. This summer we asked the question, what fruit would we like to see in this church in the days ahead? And over the fall, many of us, we brainstormed together. We had three teams that got together to, to look at different areas of ways that we want to see God grow us as a church, building upon the existing foundation and fruit that God has already given us. Because Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So why not continue with what God has already done, and what He said He will do? And so our vision had four aims, four goals, four things that we would love to see. One, to be personally mature so that our values become more central to who we are. Two, to corporately and personally reach out regularly from a centralized facility. Three, to serve the community so that Cornerstone becomes central, but also valuable to the community around us. And four, to create more value to Central Vermont by, Lord willing, planting a church in the next seven years. And so let's pray. Let's ask God to bless our time together again and see how Ezra and Nehemiah will help us to see our priorities as we move forward as a church. So, Father, we ask for your grace. You have given us so much grace already. You have grown us in so many ways. You have helped us to be mature. You have helped us to love you and love each other and the world around us. But God, we acknowledge that we have much room for growth. And so God, we ask that you would use even this time this morning to help us to grow and be more conformed to the image of your son. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So if you're looking at your pew Bibles, Ezra, I think is on page 458. Is that right? All right. I looked it up. Thought I might forget, but I'm glad I didn't. So the book of Ezra starts about 50 years after the book of 2 Chronicles finishes. The nation of Israel had been taken into exile by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And so being in a former land, it was hard for the Jews to maintain their faithfulness. They were taken out of the promised land of Israel, and God was disciplining them. And while they were in Babylon, it became comfortable for them. And so some of the Jews didn't desire to return back to Israel, and they liked their new life in Babylon. 
Yet a remnant of God's people remained, and a remnant of God's people wanted to go back to Jerusalem, to their temple in Jerusalem, according to their own laws in Scripture, and worship the God of the Bible, whom we know. Maybe you like the world we live in. Maybe you uh, think the vision might seem a little hard. Maybe this all seems like a bit too much commitment on my part. Well, many of the Jews in Babylon felt the same way as God was directing them to go back to Jerusalem. And so Ezra begins sort of a second exodus. If you're familiar with the scripture, the first exodus where Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, calling his people out of Egypt to go back to the promised land. Well, this is a second exodus where God is calling the people of God out of Babylon to return to Jerusalem. And so let's see what takes place. We'll start in verse one of the book of Ezra. It says, in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also putting it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all the people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor who, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. We'll stop right there. And so in the first year of this Persian king Cyrus, the Lord stirred up in the heart of this king, and we see this prophecy that he references in Jeremiah 25, 11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And so the 70 years has now been completed, as Phil read from our scripture reading, that God had called Cyrus to lead God's people. Nehemiah doesn't show up for another 50 years after this. Ezra had, won't show up in our text for another some 60 years later. He doesn't show up until Ezra chapter 7. But the leader stirring up these actions at the start of this book is none other than a pagan king through the hand of the Lord, the God of Israel, the covenant-keeping God of the Bible, who always keeps His promises. Lord, in all caps, it refers to Yahweh, where God's faithfulness starts with Him speaking, and it ends with Him doing something about what He said He would do. And so leadership for growth, for maturity of God's people always starts with God. It wasn't the group in Babylon waiting to go to Jerusalem. They weren't marching into the hanging gardens of Babylon and saying, we want to go back to Jerusalem where we want to serve. It wasn't the leaders who served in the synagogue there in Babylon as they were deported out of their nation that says, hey, we should go worship back in the temple of God. It was the Lord who was directing everything. God doesn't start with the leaders or with his people. He uses a pagan king 
where God is faithful to his assignment, right? We heard that language during our Advent series. He always keeps his promises by the means by which will bring him the most glory. Moses reminded God's people of this if you started looking at the fighter verses, if you downloaded that app onto your phone like I recommended last week. And this was the first one from Deuteronomy 7.9. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is the stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And he's doing that with Cyrus. Where all kings have delegated authority. Cyrus is the most powerful man in the world, like we talked about Caesar Augustus during our Advent series. Where Cyrus's authority, though, is bestowed upon him by God. Not because he's conquered a lot of people, not because he rules everywhere in the world, not because he collects taxes from all of these people, but because the Lord has given Cyrus this authority. He has given him this power, and the Lord will use it for the Lord's purposes. The Lord wants Cyrus to build a temple back in Jerusalem, in Judea. Cyrus calls God the Lord, the God of heaven, acknowledging whose authority this proclamation comes from, giving Cyrus all that he has. But in saying the Lord, it's Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, the God of the Jews. Cyrus is even acknowledging this name of God, who is faithful to his people. Cyrus is Lord of just measly Persia. that stretched from Turkey all the way to Afghanistan, almost up to Russia, back down into India. It was a large territory that he ruled over. But it's the God of heaven who does this. God of everything always keeping his word. And so Cyrus does what the Lord tells him to do. And what we will see through this book of Ezra in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah is that the Lord, God, is in absolute control of everything. I probably sound like a broken record, but the Bible reminds us over and over again that God has absolute sovereignty over everything. It is in the temple of Jerusalem that is first and foremost the indispensable mark that the Lord is the center of worship for God's people. It's to be in Jerusalem, so Cyrus says, go to Jerusalem. And whoever wants to go, go. No one was begging to return to Jerusalem. Cyrus gives the option, a free will offering to support the mission, and he offers to personally assist in God's people returning. It's what God uses to work in the hearts of his people, the people of Babylon, and also in the heart of Cyrus. And they contribute, even the Babylonians and the Jews go. And so let me paint a picture of what is taking place. It's kind of odd. It would be like something like this around here, saying like in the first week of Governor Scott's fourth term as governor of Vermont, that he declares that a new church or the church would be built up in Royalton and Bethel. And all the people of Windsor County take a special offering to go and help God's people build a church, build up the church here in our area. It doesn't happen unless the Lord is stirring it up. And he does. Look what happens in verse 5. 
So then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred could go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed it in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out into the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them, and Sheshbazzar, the appearance of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and all of the silver were 5,400. And these did Sheshbazzar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So from the greatest to the least, God's providential hand was leading and directing everything. The men, they started to lead. They gathered as heads of households of their ancestral homes and their homes of Judah and Benjamin. Everyone was stirred up to go. The Lord stirred up in the heart of Cyrus, and then he stirred up in the heart of the men to lead their families to go. But not everyone went back to Jerusalem. Not everyone will join us in what we sense God is calling us into. But who's in control? You can answer. God. That's right. The Lord is in control. The Lord stirs up what the Lord wants to stir. God is faithful, and He stirs up faithfulness in His people, where God keeps His word, and we follow His word. Israel began the process of returning back to Jerusalem. They gathered what had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar. If you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, where Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, he comes in, he conquers, and he takes all their treasured possessions away. And Cyrus gives them back to take back to Jerusalem. And Cyrus threw in a little bit extra on top of that. Seems strange, doesn't it? It does to me. It normally doesn't happen. Giving gifts to those you are against. When we left California and we moved out here, our church, they gave us some gifts. They sent us with gifts to bring out here to, to bless us. But our Muslim neighbors didn't do that. This sort of event happened, though, first in Exodus, if you're familiar with that story. In Exodus 12, this is what happened. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. If you're familiar with Exodus, the, la the firstborn son of all the Egyptian households had been killed by the Lord, and the people of Egypt were done. Get out of here, take our stuff, get away from us, because of the devastation that had been caused among them. This time, though, it's a blessing. It's a free will offering by the pagan Babylonians and giving back what was rightfully theirs to the Jews to take back. And then Ezra 2 lists all the people who went back. I don't want to read all the names because I'll probably mess them up, but I still will read some. The first group of names is important. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. 
They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Raham, and Bena. There's an almost identical list to these names in Nehemiah chapter 7, showing us the link between these two books. A couple things to note before we move on with these names is that for the rest of these first six chapters of, I almost kicked those over, didn't I? The most six, these next six chapters of Ezra, uh, we're going to see Zerubbabel is leading his people. He is the king, or in some sense, the leader of God's people that's organizing things. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, in both Matthew and Luke's genealogy, guess who shows up in genius, or Jesus's lineage? Zerubbabel. There you go. We get some interaction. So what do we do with the names on this list? Maybe you're wondering about this in your own Bible reading plan as we call you to a new Bible reading plan every year. Well, these are not just random people, although they might seem to be random people for you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And there comes a time, right, in all of our Bible reading plans, maybe towards the end of February, early March, where we get to the end of Exodus, the people have received the Ten Commandments, it's a lot of action that's taken place, and then we get a list of all the priestly things they need to wear, and how the temple or the tabernacle at that time was supposed to look. And then we go to 27 chapters of Leviticus with laws and laws and laws and laws, and then Numbers starts with a list of God's people. And it's where most give up on their Bible reading plan. Like I said last week, there is no magic formula to a Bible reading plan. It doesn't give you a nice gold star on your heavenly chart. And so maybe start reading Leviticus now. Get through the hard stuff while we have some energy, while we have some excitement to get through the Bible this year, and then go back to Genesis. Let's get through it. God is faithful. We learn about His faithfulness in His Word. And so, friends, we need to read our Bibles consistently. As Peter said in our, gospel, our study in the Gospel of John, they are the words of eternal life. You have time to read even our two-year Bible reading plan. It only takes like five to seven minutes. I'm not going to ask you, but I'm going to ask you, how many minutes have you spent on your phone today looking at whatever? I think we all have five to seven minutes. You might even put forth the effort. I think that many of us could read the Bible a few times this year if we wanted to. Friends, we need our Bibles. God is faithful, and we are faithful to obey. But if we don't know what His Bible says, how will we obey Him? It's only the 8th of January. The days it's still morning. It's still before noon. Like, it's, you're only seven days behind. We can do this. Devotionals in the Bible are great. But it's like having a snack or an appetizer to the real meal that we all need. The Bible is a feast that we can gorge ourselves on, and it will never leave us unsatisfied. All right, let's go back to Ezra. No more ranting. 
how are these lists of names, these challenging passages that we see in the Old Testament profitable for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness? I'm glad you asked. Before we apply the overall text of Ezra, how do we approach these texts? I think there's a few things for that we can apply and learn from in texts like this. And so as you're going about your Bible reading plan, remember these things. First, God knows his people. He covenants with real people that he knows by name. He gives real people eternal life by believing in his son by name. God wrote these names down in the Bible because they matter. So do you. When days are tough, when winter, if we ever get one, is long, when things seem like they're not going as planned, God knows and he makes covenants with his people. And it shows that he loves us. Two, common, everyday, ordinary people are the ones that God uses to accomplish his purposes. God uses people like Billy Graham, like John Piper, like Keith and Kristen Getty, who we sing their songs. But God also uses everyday, ordinary people who love Him, who submit to Him, who are willing to be used by Him to accomplish great things. John Piper isn't here in Royalton, in Bethel. I, get, I did look it up. Billy Graham did do a crusade in Burlington, but he didn't make it to central Vermont. Even those who are not leaders, God uses to accomplish His purposes. He uses for blessing your neighbors. He uses you to share the gospel with your family, your co-workers. He has called you to Cornerstone Church to be here with us today. We aren't important in the world's eyes. Not many know where Royalton or Bethel is. When I was moving out here, one of my co-workers was like, is Vermont in Canada? It was everyday ordinary folks who listened to the call of God on their lives that God used to rebuild a temple. God could have called the master craftsmen who, re who managed the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the ancient wonders of the world. But he called guys like Era, Elam, Baina, Edin. I only used the two-syllable names because it was easier. God knows his people. God uses his people. Third, God cares for his people. The list of names re resembles other lists of names that we have in the Old Testament. Like I said, when Israel left Egypt, there was a list in Numbers of who left. A couple books later in Joshua, there was a list of names that God put in Scripture of who went back into the Promised Land. And here, God counts his people who go back into the Promised Land again. Why? Because God is faithful to real people, to His people, who faithfully love Him. God cares for His people. Fourth, God calls leaders to lead His people. Verse 36 says the priests went. Then verse 40, the Levites. Verse 43, temple servants. Verse 55, the sons of Solomon. God uses His people to accomplish His purposes, and He gives them leaders, elders, pastors, deacons, leaders, to lead them. The leaders are not called out by name or by clan because they're more capable than everybody else or more important. But like we saw in the last chapter, the men lead because God calls men to lead. Godly leaders shepherd and lead God's people. 
You may have heard the, the, the phrase before. In your life, so go the men, so go the home. Or, so go the men, so go the church. And I would suggest that many of the challenges that we have in our country today are because men are failing to lead. So go the men, so goes the country. Men are not more valuable to God than women, but from the very beginning, God created Adam first, and he created Eve second. Who did the serpent go to in the temptation in Genesis chapter 3? To Eve. The serpent went around God's ordained order for the world. God gives men a role, a heavy responsibility to lead. And when we look at what happened as a result of the fall, who got the harder talking to? It was Adam, as Genesis says, who was with her. I saw a meme last week. Maybe you did as well. It was joking headline. Progressive pastor introduces one year, don't read your Bible plan. Followed by a joke, my plan is designed to be like an easy wide path that everyone can follow. It was funny, but if you look at denominations which have gone off the rails in our country to liberal theology, it starts with a lack of looking to this first. It is our number one value as a church for a reason. It is the measure by which all things should be measured. Because all scripture is profitable. God knows his people. God uses his people. God cares for his people. God calls leaders to care for and lead his people. The Lord is in control and he leads it all. Friends, I cannot do everything. Your elders cannot do everything. Your deacons cannot do everything. Where we cast vision and we trust God with the fruit. There are a list of things that we would love to get started. You have copies of those in your email, or maybe you took a piece of paper home with it, but we cannot do it all ourselves. I'm willing to help, but the list of needs, the list of things that we can do is long. And so your leaders would love to invest in you, to equip you for the work of ministry. So God has put things on your heart. Come talk to us. We would love to help and equip you for the work of ministry. God uses his people to accomplish his purpose. But in verse 59, we see a group of people not allowed to participate in a particular way. It says the following were those who came up from Telma. Telharsh, Telharsha, Cherub, Adan, and Emmer. They could not prove their father's houses or the descent, whether they belonged to Israel. And so in verse 62, these sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thurim. Remember these folks that have been in Babylon for 70 years. Like the northern tribes of Israel, there was 10 of them. They intermingled with the Assyrians. And we learn about these derogatory half-breed names that we saw in the book of John called Samaritans. Well, the people of Benjamin and Judah, while they were in Babylon, intermingled with the Babylonians. And they couldn't prove their descendants, so they weren't allowed 
to participate in the priesthood. They were allowed to return with the people of Israel, but they were not given the role of leadership because they were unclean. Friends, God calls his people to be holy. He care about, cares about the purity of his people because it reflects his character. Recall why they were in Babylon. Because they had continued in sin for generation after generation after generation. And God took them to Babylon and they continued to be in their sin. And so friends, God wants us to be faithful to Him while He is faithful to us. He's faithful God who keeps His covenant and steadfast love to those who keep His commandments for a thousand generations. Where God stirred up in Cyrus, God stirred up in His people, and ultimately God is the one who makes us holy because He cares about our purity in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts, and it comes through the gospel, our third value, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why we gather. That's why we do all of the things that we do. That's why we have it here as part of our vision. And it should lead us to worship. Look at what happens when the people arrive in Jerusalem, if we pick back up in verse 68. Some of the heads of the families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to this treasury the work 61,000 diracs of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. Their first action as they returned back to Jerusalem was to worship, to give to God's work of rebuilding the temple, the house of God. And it was a free will offering. It was not a compulsory offering. It was an opportunity to participate in what God was doing, not an obligation for them to be generous. They worshiped with their stuff. Like the first temple, the second temple would be completed by those who would joyfully and willingly give to the temple work. We'll explore more of this in the weeks to come. But how does this tie to our vision for the years ahead? Well, God is faithful. Will we be faithful to Him? As we cast some vision for the days, weeks, and months ahead... Even for the years ahead, remember first that God is sovereign. If you remember anything from our time in the book of Ezra, or any time I get up here in the scripture, follow God's word and remember that he is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign. He is faithful. We will fail him all the time. God will never fail us. He will need to do the work. He needed to stir within the hearts of Cyrus and within the hearts of the people of Israel, he will need to stir within us to do something. If he doesn't, would that mean the vision would fail? Maybe. If it doesn't happen, it would still be God's will for us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love others as we love ourselves, to make disciples. Those are good things that we see in God's word to do. He calls us to do. We can go to God's will. So whatever happens with the vision for this church in the days ahead, will we give ourselves to what we know God wants of us as he's revealed it 
in his word? And will we trust his sovereignty? Pray that God would sanctify us in this, to make us more like Jesus, to mature us even more, to trust him more, to have more faith in him, to serve him more, to love others more like he calls us to. Consider our building as a place for God's people to gather, a place to steward like the temple for the nations to come and be with God, but also with his people. And so whatever happens, God is faithful. He always has been, he always is, and he always will be. We can take that to the bank. The temple was indispensable to the work of God. We don't have a temple today. There's a wall in Jerusalem. We don't call this building the temple. It'd be kind of weird. Maybe feel a little out of place like the Israelites felt who were in Babylon, where this state or this country is just a hard place to live at times. Like most, if not all, I kind of like living here, though. I would prefer not to live in Southern California anymore. Worse, I would rather not live in Massachusetts. Paul tells the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus told the woman at the well, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will we worship the Father. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And Paul tells the Corinthian church, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So Ezra is an exilic book. The people are in exile. It's a book about a people without a place, but still with a God to worship. Peter calls the church sojourners and exiles while calling the church to remain holy, abstaining from sin. A building is nice and we want to continue to steward that for that which God has called us to, but it's just a building. We're a temple of God ourselves. We are a family of God collectively. And we represent God in the world. More than a physical temple, the people of God today are indispensable to the mission of God in the world. The temple was a place where God's people would gather to worship. Ezra records God's people building a physical temple. But we are the temple of God today in this world. And maybe this study will help us to see ways that we can be built up together to grow in maturity through our fellowship, which is our second value. Christians worship in every country of the world today, in far-off corners and forgotten small places like where we live, in obscure towns where everyday ordinary people gather and worship the God of the Bible. And there are ones that God calls to go to the nations, to declare repentance, to declare the gospel, and that includes you and me today. They are used by God to do great things. And so do you believe that God can stir up in the hearts of folks around us to follow him? Many around here are familiar with the things of God. Maybe they grew up in the church, yet they just disregard what God says. Others aren't familiar at all of what the scriptures say. They didn't grow up in the church and they have no reason to come through our doors on a Sunday morning. Not everyone will follow like we see in Ezra 1 and 2. But we, do we trust God's faithfulness to his word and his faithfulness to himself that he will build the church? Do we delight in the fact that he wants to use us to accomplish 
that purpose. As our leaders were discussing what a document could look like and casting some vision, we could have made a long list of what all these things could cost. A wall here, a steeple on the roof, redoing the parking lot, or any of these things. Found out we might need to work on the boiler pretty soon. But we decided not to provide a list and all these things that would cost a bunch of money. We decided it'd be better to trust God and the call that we have for all of us to continue to be generous to the work that God is doing here in this church and to trust God that would provide for our needs and as we have resources that we would invest those resources in our building or maybe to plant a church down the road as a priority list comes about. And when we ask for input, we would love you to chime in. Oftentimes when we ask for input, nobody says anything. We would really appreciate and love you guys being part of this body and chiming in because even as our family, we sit around our dinner table. I ask questions and I expect my children to, to respond to the questions. So I would encourage you, please chime in. It's okay, we're still a family and families are weird at times. We all understand that. Not everyone went to Jerusalem. Not everyone will participate with us, and it's okay. It may not end up as we had planned. We can pretty much assume that it won't. But ultimately, in the end, God will be faithful. He calls His people to be faithful, and we leave the fruit up to Him. And so in the next few weeks, we will see what that fruit looks like, some good and some bad. The people made it back to the promised land, we see. We are a people of God's promises as well. And Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so let's pray. It's our fourth value, and let's invite the music team up to lead us in some more song as we worship a great and mighty, powerful and faithful God. Father, it's a lot easier to look out the rearview mirror and see what you have already done than look out the windshield and guess at what you may do. And so, God, we thank you for your word that has been given to us to steward, to read, to be transformed by, to correct us, to guide us in the way that we should go. It is a light for our feet and a guide for our path. And so, God, we ask you that in the days ahead, even this day, that your word would lead and guide us, that it would transform us and conform us more to the image of your Son, that our church, that we who gather as Cornerstone Church would look more like your Son, we would act more like your Son, we would be more like your Son because of the work that you give us to do, the things that you call us to give ourselves to, but most importantly, the work that your son did for us. And so out of that, the reconciliation that we have with you, God, you would give us a desire and a drive to go and bear witness to who you are and what you've done to each other, but also to the world around us for your glory and for our joy. We thank you, God, for this opportunity to be here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.